according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me one more time today in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. We're going to handle 20, 21, and about half of 22. Working our way through the Ten Commandments, the most famous part. What did I say last hour? Uh, the most famous part of the book of Exodus after the the Red Sea crossing itself, I think I said was the manna. No, I think the Ten Commandments is more famous than the manna. Um, you know, the thou shalt not in, in the list of these ten things. And if you can do these ten things, does that mean you can save yourself? People are confused about what the Ten Commandments were even about. So uh, we'll deal with that here today. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number one is God first. The one who saved you, the one who redeemed you. You shall have no other gods. But, but Yahweh is your Elohim. All right, before we start, let's take a moment for silent prayer and commit this time for his good pleasure, for his glory. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, once again, we come before you thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for this time in your truth. Thankful, Father, that we have uh, a daily reading schedule and we have a pulpit teaching that, that goes right alongside, Father, to provide uh, uh, notes and understandings and, and blessings. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. There is a parallel to this in the book of Deuteronomy. Do you know where it is? Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5, all right? And if you ever want to try to find the Ten Commandments, those are the places to find them. So let's just take the, uh, the Exodus edition of it here today. We'll get Deuteronomy when we get into the next generation. So God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh, your Elohim. He's not the God of the Egyptians or the anybody else. He's the God of Israel. I am Yahweh, your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Not the gods of the Egyptians or the Philistines or any of the other gods, the false gods, the fallen angels posing as gods, that Yahweh is their God. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth, idolatry is a big deal, and it's, it's always been a big deal. We see it in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament. We'll have a lot to say about idolatry in our upcoming classes. So commandment one, commandment two are very close together. You have no other gods, and you will not make the, uh, the graven images. So let's start off with the notes, the outline on the left. This is um, the first telling of the first uh, the introduction to all of Mosaic Law starts here, okay? Sometimes it's called the Decalogue, sometimes it's called the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. Um, it's not the totality of the law. The, the law itself has 613 commandments altogether when you piece together everything out of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But this, this is the kickoff. This is the, the Big Ten, if you will, uh, related to these commands. Mosaic Covenant consists of a law that Israel was expected to abide under as a constitution for their new nation. They're being called out as a nation. They're going to be placed into a land, and this is going to be the, the operating system. This is going to be the constitution that they're going to abide by. 
The law contains moral, civil, and ceremonial components. And part of what I think people struggle with in terms of being a church age believer and trying to place themselves under the law somehow is that they, they do real well when it comes to the moral components. When it comes to the moral principles of what's right and wrong, what pleases God, what's, what's uh, in violation of God's nature, the moral law is, the very, is very readily able for us to adapt, but the, the ceremonial law, not at all, not even close, and the civil law, even worse, I think, as it relates to the political government that we're under at the, at the local, state, and national level. So we're gonna, we'll discuss this as we work our way through the different sections of Mosaic Law and we start to see which portions are moral, which portions are, are ceremonial, and which par- uh, portions are civil. The principles for moral law are restated in the New Testament for church age applications, not under law, but under grace. All right, So the moral issues are unchanging. Uh, adultery has always been wrong, even though you know Old Testament, New Testament, it doesn't matter that we're not under law, uh, adultery, stealing, murder, all those things, the moral elements still remain valid in, in our own application, not on a law basis, but under grace, in the freedom that we have in grace to be walking in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. The pattern for civil government can be emulated by Gentile nations for temporal life blessing. All right, now, the, the pattern for civil government. Now we've got to adapt it clearly. There's going to be things we can't exactly copy across. Uh, for example, Israel was a, was a collection of tribes. There were 12 tribes within the nation of Israel. And, and so their, their national government oversaw 12 tribal land grants and 12 tribal organizations. We're not tribal, right? America, for example, is a federation of 50 states. And so we have, there's something similar in the sense that the states combine together to make up the federal, um, but we're not tribal, okay? So while there's things that might be similar, there's things that are clearly different. And in, in particular, the fact that each of our states is also required to be a representative form of government, that we can't have any one state just decide that they want to be a, a, a tribal uh, family clan kind of a thing, all right? We have to be, each of our 50 states has to be a representative form of government. There's other things that we can't emulate. For example, Israel was a theocracy in which uh, having no other gods before the Lord God was a part of their constitutional charter. America is not called as a as a theocracy. America is not called, uh, in, in other words, our First Amendment that gives us the freedom to be biblical Christians also allows non-Christian religions the same freedom that we have. Okay, Now do you have a problem with that? that that's up for discussion and we can discuss that on a different basis, but we are not a theocracy, which means the Muslims can be Muslims and the Mormons can be Mormons and the, the Buddhists can be Buddhists and, the, and, and Jewish people can, can follow Judaism. All right, because we're not a theocracy that prohibits those other gods from having their worship in our land. Anyway, principle of nationalism for temporal life blessings is a feature of the Gentiles. Nowhere in that portion of Scripture do we have a detailed statement of how God expects nations to conduct their business. So while we have clues, like the Tower of Babel, we want to separate the people groups by their people group, by their language, by their borders. We have general principles, but we don't have specifics given for how those nations should run their business. Okay, 
We do, though, have with the Jewish nation. We have God specifically granting a charter, God specifically granting a system of laws. National faithfulness to God's revealed word results in national blessing. And national rebellion against God's revealed word results in national cursing. Something to keep in mind as we work our way through the law is that God deals with individuals on an individual basis. God deals with nations on a national basis. Okay, And so that means that if, as a nation, there is a hostility to the word of God, then there's going to be consequences for that nation. Even if there's a remnant within the nation, even if there's a solid cadre of believers that are hungry for truth and they're supporting their local church and are glorifying Jesus Christ, if the nation by and large is in open rebellion against God, that nation is headed for discipline. Okay? We've got to be clear on that. Also for a Gentile nation, as long as we're going to be adapting the law, the closer we get our laws to Israel's law, the better we're going to be because it's going to be consistent with God's standards of righteousness and God's standards of morality. The further we get from it, the more we open ourselves up to God's displeasure. Okay, And we're going to see very quickly when we get into Leviticus, God's got an awful lot of things in, in the law uh, such as fornication, adultery, uh, homosexuality. There's a whole lot of things in Mosaic law that are no longer criminal issues in our society today. And on that basis, what is the consequence? How does our culture, well, we, we sow the wind and we reap the whirlwind, but how, how does our culture experience the consequences of legalizing what God has outlawed, what God has determined to be sin and to be civil violation of, of the Mosaic law. Well, we have consequences, okay? I mean, the obvious one is um, we have a much higher divorce rate because under Mosaic law, adultery is punished by death. I mean, that's the kind of the simple one to just highlight. <laughs> you have a lot fewer divorces when the adulterer is put to death and the widow is free to remarry. Other consequences as well related to the other um, abominations that we celebrate. A final issue that doesn't apply to the Jewish people but applies to all the Gentile nations is the principles of Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. That any Gentile nation that wants to make their laws conformable to the uh, to the blessings of the God of Israel needs to have a foreign and domestic policy that is favorable to the people of Israel. So Gentile nations are blessed or cursed in proportion to their foreign policy for or against Israel. And I would expand that, not just foreign policy, but domestic policy. We have a foreign policy that blesses the nation of Israel. We're lining up for blessing. If we have domestic policy whereby Jewish people are protected and upheld and encouraged, in other words, they're not living in fear that their synagogues are going to be burned down or that their uh, their schools are going to be uh, attacked or uh, that pogroms are going to be inflicted against them in their neighborhoods and their communities, that uh, they're not going to be forced uh, to, to live in a ghetto and then and then uh, abused or, or massacred in uh, as a matter of state or national policy. In other words, I think our land has given freedom to Jewish people ever since Michael de Ruder gave freedom for Jewish people to settle, to, uh, to settle in New Amsterdam. Okay, Realize the Jewish people have been in New York longer than New York has been called New York. That uh, the Jewish people were encouraged to settle in New Amsterdam as a haven 
for their freedom. And then, of course, we got it, uh, the British got it from uh, the Dutch, and New Amsterdam became New York. But the blessings of the Jewish people in New York is older than America. And now we're starting to see that uh, become a problem in, in anti-Semitism and, and things there. All right. That's just kind of some general thoughts on Mosaic Law that apply to the, to the Gentile nations. We'll have more to say on that. The basis for the law is the character of Yahweh and His rights as Israel's Redeemer. His character and His rights. If He's the one that redeemed, then who do they belong to? This is very important. Just like us, when we're redeemed from our sin, when we're saved, did we save ourselves? Did we redeem ourselves? No, we did not. God purchased us. And what, he, what did He pay for us? The blood of His Son, okay, with an eternally infinite price. And so now do we own ourselves? Do we belong to ourselves? Are we gods unto ourselves? No. We have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God, we're told. And so based upon our redemption, based upon their redemption. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Now in one way of looking at it, of course, there are no other gods. There are no other gods. I mean, fundamentally, it's a, uh, Judaism is a monotheistic faith. Christianity is, a, is monotheistic. There is only one I am. Okay? And there's nobody else that can de- declare I am because it's the, the self-existent one is the one and only. Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am first, I am last. There is no God besides me. He is the only I am. The only one without beginning, without end, is God. Every angel that calls himself a God had a beginning, was a created spirit being that God created. Even the ones that are the highest rank, that are called gods. Remember, he's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the God of gods. There are many gods and many lords, but they are spirit beings. They are angels created by God that have the, that have the nature that God has, has given them. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Let him recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation, let them declare it to them, the things that are coming, the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any other rock? I know of none. So keep in mind, when the omniscient God says he doesn't know of any and he knows everything, that tells you everything you need to know right there. All right. So of course there are no other gods. However, the fallen angels do view themselves as gods. They seduce human beings into their worship. When you're partaking of the table of demons, you're, you're uh, presenting yourself to, notice it says Galatians 4, 8, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. They like to think that they are, and they love to be worshiped, but they're just fallen angels posing as, uh, as counterfeits, the elemental things to which we get subjected to. 1 Corinthians 8. Concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know there's no such thing as an idol. So you got meat that was uh, bought in the, uh, in the temple of Aphrodite. Big deal, who cares? It's, uh, it's meat, it's cooked, it tastes great, eat it, God bless you. Okay, But... You've got brothers and sisters that have struggles in that regard. You've got brothers and sisters that have a background with that temple before they got saved. To them, it is a big deal and was divisive in the church at Corinth. 
He goes on to say, uh, there's no such thing as an idol in the world, there is no God but one. However, even if there, there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. So by concession he says, if you, are you talking about those fallen angels? All right. These so-called gods? These, these posers? All right. Even if there are. For the unbelievers that are wrapped up in demonism, unbelievers that are serving fallen angels... All right, that's what they're doing. I'm not sweating that. That's, that doesn't bother me any. For us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. One Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. So if you are oriented with divine viewpoint, you're not going to sweat the idolatry. You're not going to sweat the false gods that are out there. Still, though, you've got to be aware of their existence and be mindful. Remember, those magicians of Pharaoh... They had real satanic power. Let's not be ignorant of that. All right, the things which they sacri- the Gentiles sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons, not to God. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. So that is very much a very real issue. First Chronicles 16, 25 and 26. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. That's the big difference right there. One God made all those other so-called gods. Okay, They're all created beings. The most mighty angel that ever existed is a created being, and God made them. God made all the angels. So God is the only God, and in keeping with His name, Jealous does not tolerate human worship of any other so-called God. And when we get forward into Ezekiel 34, we're going to see this, not Ezekiel, Exodus 34. You shall not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous. We find out Yahweh has a middle name, okay? Not really a middle name, but he's got a lot of names. And right connected with Yahweh is this name of Jealous, whose name is Jealous because he's a jealous God. And so when you're serving those other gods, when you're violating commandment number one, God, the God whose name is Jealous is coming at you. That's what it comes down to. He doesn't tolerate it. He does not tolerate it. <coughs> All right, commandment number two. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or the earth beneath. So if you go so far as to pretend that there are other gods and you decide that one of them becomes your favorite instead of Yahweh then you're going to compound your sin. You're going to add insult to injury by multiplying your sin by adding idolatry, the, the fashioning of an idol. Remember, God is spirit. must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. God doesn't have a form. How do you make an idol out of something without a form? How, do you, how does your imagination try to create an image or carve something in stone or form something of gold or bronze? Whatever you're shaping, whatever you're pretending is your God, like a golden calf, for example, uh, whatever you're, you're imagining is your God is, is just an insult to the I am without any form. And then the truth is, it's an open defiance of God who already has put his image in this world. He put this image in this world when he created Adam in the, in the image and likeness of God. <coughs> so, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. 
You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Notice how idolatry very quickly becomes ingrained in a culture, (coughs) in family traditions across generations. And so God limits that. He cuts his losses after that third or that fourth generation but showing loving kindness to a thousand generations. (coughs) Man. (coughs) I'm going to get through this fourth hour. This is just crazy. All right. Showing loving kindness to a thousand generations. Now it's not translated that way, but it could be and it should be. Because... The, what's in parallel there is the third and the fourth generations in verse 5, and then it comes forward to a thousand generations in verse 6. And if it's not translated well there, it's, it is translated better in, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, in Psalm 105, other places, we have the promises of a thousand generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. So idolatry is absolutely evil because it mocks the nature of God and His creation. God is the one who made all things, cannot be represented by any made thing. Just to take a made thing and say this represents the unmade, the uncaused, horrible. (coughs) All right. God is the one who made all things. The Creator is expected to be served by His creation, but idolatry turns that around. The idol maker serves the idol. The danger of idolatry is that it becomes a heritage for God-haters. And it sure does. I mean, if you think about it, we have examples of this even today in modern times. We have um, idolatry of such that you have multiple generations just saturated with this and it becomes ingrained so that if you even think about leaving the mother church, oh my, you have just become the enemy and now you've upset grandparents and parents and cousins and, and a whole culture is, is dedicated to keeping you in the, in the fold, in the cult. You know what I'm talking about? All right. And this is a remarkable expression of, of, all kinds of, of unchristian religions, including some that pose as Christian. It's pretty sad. All right. Commandment number three. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Verse seven. In fact, just, just a single verse, one little lonely verse right here. You shall, Exodus 20 and verse seven. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's You shall not take the name of Yahweh, your Elohim, in vain. For Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now we've got to figure out what are we talking about when I'm taking the name of Yahweh? What does this mean? And how do I do it in an empty way? How do I do it in a meaningless way? In vain. This involves false vows with God as a witness. Right? When you say, oh, I swear to God. We use these idioms, we use these throwaway words, we don't realize that the God of truth defends his name fiercely. A false vow with God as a witness. This is going to get expanded in Leviticus 19 and verse 12. 
You shall not swear falsely by my name. You know, you put your hand on a Bible, you raise your right hand, you say, so help me God. You're invoking the name of God as your witness. And then it used to be, of course, when our nation was founded and very much God-fearing, that that oath was, was a fearful oath. Nowadays, nobody even cares anymore. Truth, lie, whatever, it's all just kind of fuzzy and whatever your lawyers say it is is what it is. And if it can't be proven, then whatever the politicians say it is, it is. And now, in fact, truth is no longer even objective. Truth is whatever the ministry of truth tells you it is. And if you violate what they say is truth, then you're the one spreading false news. But the God of truth remains the God of truth. This would also involve not giving the appropriate worship that his name is entitled to. See, if he has magnified his word in accordance with his name, then that means his name is exalted. And and to denigrate that name, to discredit that name, let him who names the name of the Lord abstain from all wickedness, we're told. How dare you name the name of Jesus Christ and then go, uh, you know, conduct yourself like a pagan. That is absolutely blasphemy against the name of Jesus Christ. So not giving the appropriate worship that his name is entitled to. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come worship before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. And we have such darkness in our land today that even you know taking the Lord's name in vain, even just profaning the name, even just you know shouting out Jesus Christ in anger as if our Savior is a curse word. And yet it's just a, a facet of our culture. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Now I think it can be abused, we can worship that. I, I've made it very clear, I don't, I think the Jews have an artificial phony version of this where they don't say Yahweh out loud as if Yahweh, 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 as if somehow that's like Voldemort or something. You, you've said a, a word that they're scared of saying. And so they don't, they don't say Yahweh. Instead they substitute Adonai. And maybe, I don't know, maybe originally that was a reverence thing and whatnot, but nowadays I actually think it's, it's just external legalism. Oh, could be wrong. But ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Psalm 29, 2 Again, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. His name is entitled to worship. This also involves bearing the name of Christ but not living that life appropriately. 1 Peter 4, verses 14 through 16. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are happy. Okay, makarios. Not blessed, happy. Because the spirit of glory in God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or a thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, well, praise God. He is not to be ashamed, but he is to glorify God in this name. I tell you, when we're suffering undeserved suffering for the glory of Jesus Christ, praise God. Suffering as a martyr, suffering as, as naming the name of Christ not as a murderer, thief, or troublesome meddler, or whatever. If you're, just, if you're a criminal paying you know, society's price for your crimes, that's not uh, the undeserved suffering that's glorifying Jesus Christ. That's just a, a sinner facing the consequences of his crimes. So we have the, uh, the issues there. Taking the name of your Lord God in vain. All right. Commandment number four, the Sabbath. 
This is the one that does not have a New Testament equivalent. The one that is not repeated in the church age in the New Testament because we have day after day as long as it is called today. Our Sabbath is all day every day with the mental attitude of faith rest before the Lord. But Israel had a Sabbath day. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. And so this set them apart, set them apart from the Gentiles, the nations around them. In the seventh day they would not work. Notice the principle precedes the formal law. They had a Sabbath principle back in chapter 16 when he was giving them the the manna instructions. So before the, the formal law was even instituted, the principle was there. Even the human race had this principle given when God rested on the seventh day in Genesis chapter 2. For the church age, it's a daily principle for church age believers, day after day as long as it is called today. Our Sabbath is today. Right here, right now, I'm resting in the grace of God. I'm resting in His faithfulness. I'm resting in His plan. All day, every day. Commandment number five, honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. There was no promise that was connected to commandment one or two or three or four. No commandment, no promise that was given with any of those. Here's the first commandment with a promise. That in honoring your father and mother there is a prolonging we gotta, we got to consider how this works because uh, otherwise we're tempted to think that, oh, well, there's just X number of days. That's all we have. God knows our days before there's even one of them. And, uh, and I can't change it. And whatever I got is what I got. God in His sovereignty gave me X number of days. Yes, He did. He gave you X number of days. He also gave you Y number of days and Z number of days. That God in His plan is, is so much more complex than just the simplicity of X number of days. That there is a Y option. There is a Y variable. So the X number of days is the standard. And then as you honor your father and mother, you can have the X number become the Y number. There's also a negative number. There's a detraction that happens through the sin unto death. The, The Z number of days whereby God steps in and just cuts his losses and says, all right, you're done. You're not going to make it to X. Because in the discipline of God, He shortens your days through, through the uh, sin unto death. The consequence for faithfully obeying this command is a prolonging of days. And we get this. There's a, there's a set number of days in the eternal counsel of God's will. Psalm 139 and verse 16, before there's even one of them. All, uh, in your book were written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. So God knows the day we're going to depart physical life. It's been decreed since the foundation of the world. But that's the X number of days. Beyond that, there's also the extension that he grants. Beyond that, there might be a shortage that he sadly enforces. Job 14.5, again, his days are determined. His limits you have set so that he cannot pass. That's the X number of days. Matthew 6.27, who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? Jesus said that, you know, even if you've got this amazing diet, nutrition, exercise, and whatever, and you're all caught up in the the best of plants around the world or whatever else you're doing, your X number of days is still your X number of days. Now, under the sin unto death, that span can be shortened in the permissive will of God. 
1 John 5.16, there's the sin unto death. I do not say that he should make request for this, but it is what it is. The sin unto death. And then there's the extension of days. Remember when Hezekiah was granted extra days. I will add 15 years to your life. This is true. This can, this is possible. It can happen. God can grant extensions beyond the X number of days. You can't make it happen, but God can grant it. And I believe that the uh, command in, in honoring your father and mother is in keeping with this, the extension of the X number of days to, to push that X number out to the Y number, out to the extended number of blessing. And Hezekiah is the great example of that. 15 years to his life. And by the way, kind of good thing that he got those extra years, right? Because the line of Christ would have ended there if he didn't get those extra years. But he got those extra years and he put forth a son and the line of Christ continues. How, how cool is that? Isaiah thirty-eight fifteen. Again, go to say to Hezekiah, I've heard your prayer. I have seen your years. Tears, behold, I will add 15 years to your life. So the idea that God can expand, your days may be prolonged, it is consistent with not only the X number of days, but also the Y number and the Z number of days that God in His foreknowledge has already decreed. He knows them. He knows everybody that's going to die of the sin and the death and, and whatever that, that Z number is that He cuts it short. And He knows everybody that's going to honor their father and mother that gets the extension that He promises there. What a criteria for extending to, from X to Y. The criteria for lengthening your days is how you honor your father and your mother. Okay, this is the criterion. The blessing we have, angels don't have access to this. It's only humanity that has access to this. That is begetters and begotten ones. And the privilege we have as begotten ones to, to bless our begetters. Okay, even as we emulate Jesus Christ and his desire to glorify his father, we have the opportunities there. All right, commandment number six, you shall not murder. Pretty simple. You shall not murder. In fact, I think it's even just two words in the Hebrew. Yeah, lo tirzah. There we go. Any questions? Lo tirzah. Two words. You shall not murder. Keep in mind, tirzah, murder is not every homicide imaginable, that there is self-defense, there is warfare, there is the execution of a criminal under uh, the laws of capital punishment. Ratzach is a verb here for murder. Strong's number 7523. This command does not prohibit capital punishment because that's commanded elsewhere. The, the government bears the sword, not for no reason. The government bears the sword for a very good reason. Likewise, self-defense isn't murder. Somebody breaks into your house and you're defending yourself, that's not murder. The scripture allows you, in fact, even commands you to protect your family. Just war in the service of one's nation is not murder. Murder. Soldiers on the battlefield serving their, their uh, political leaders and in, in serving their king in battle, that's not murder. All of which are sanctioned elsewhere in Scripture. Even the idea of lying uh, in, the, in the service of your nation, the deception of war, the deception of espionage, when, when uh, Rahab lies about the spies, that's not a violation. That is sanctified in the will of God. We'll talk about that when we get to the uh, cloak and dagger world of espionage. You shall not commit adultery. 
This is a, a very famous one because in a very early English translation, uh, a terrible printing error left the word not out of, out of it was called the adulterer's Bible. And uh, they left the word not. And so it said, thou shalt commit adultery. And you talk about a, you know, a scandal. And uh, so they, uh, they ordered up all those to be burned and destroyed. And evidently very successfully, because no one has produced one today, that uh, they successfully you know, confiscated all the ones that had come off the press and had them, uh, had them burned. But if you can find one today, let me tell you, you'll make some money on that. That's going to be worth a pretty penny. The verb na'af, to commit adultery. Now this is a separate, more specific prohibition than zanah. Zanah is the general term that speaks of fornication or harlotry. Na'af is the specific term that pinpoints the violation of the marriage vows. It is the violation of the marriage covenant is adultery. And that is is a charge on top of the fornication. So I understand it's a separate, more specific prohibition. Fornication itself is bad enough. Fornication, we've got plenty of passages about fornication. But in the Ten Commandments, it's adultery that gets highlighted, not fornication. Adultery is the greater charge. This is going to get expanded upon, in fact, very bluntly, very graphically, this gets spelled out in Leviticus 18, so stay tuned for that. But keep in mind, both are in view, part of the moral code, part of what gets repeated in the New Testament. The book of Hebrews says, fornicators and adulterers God will judge. That's why it says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Commandment number eight, you shall not steal. Again, two words, you shall not steal. Um, The idea of private property, the idea of ownership, if it's not yours, don't take it. It's somebody else's. Okay, What's yours is yours, and what's not yours is not yours. It's somebody else's. And the, the, the blessings that we have in the image of God is the blessings to exercise sovereignty over all that belongs to us. There are our possessions. We possess, that means uh, the idea of possess speaks of, uh, I think the, the Latin is potesas, something like that. It's, it's potency, it's the power. It's related to omnipotency, right? The possessions are the things in our power because we have sovereignty over that which is ours. And if uh, somebody tells you it's not yours, then I guess we're going to find out who has the power. Okay? Governments are very good at this when they tell you, oh, that's not yours. And they have the exclusive use of force and we find out very quickly who has the power. All right, violators of this commandment are in defiance of the sovereign God who provides all good things. When he gives good things, when he puts, we talked about this with the land of Eden and the land of Havilah and the land of all the, the property rights with the minerals and the wealth in, uh, right from the very beginning. Violators of this commandment are in defiance of the sovereignty of God who provides all good things and the sovereignty of God who commanded mankind to work upon this earth. So the things that he provides are his good pleasure to provide. If he gives it to you, then why is somebody else going to take it from you? And if he gives it to somebody else, why are you going to take it from somebody else? God didn't give that to you, he gave it to somebody else. And forget just taking it, wanting to take it. Coveting is, is a violation. Which uh, is just two more commandments from now. <laughs> okay? So don't steal. 
Don't steal. If God has withheld it from you, He knows what He's doing. When, he, when, it's your, when it's His will to give it to you, He'll give it to you. Don't steal. Commandment number nine, you shall not bear false witness. This isn't a court proceeding, false witness against your neighbor. This is um, a viola- uh, violators of this commandment are in opposition to the very nature of God's essence. Remember, God is the God of truth. Violators of this commandment are in conformity to the very nature of God's adversary, the devil. So you want to be a type of God or you want to be a type of Christ, uh, a type of Satan? A type of Christ or a type of Satan? He was the liar from the beginning. He was also a murderer from the beginning. But yeah, speaking the truth in love. You have heard him and have been taught in him. The truth is in Jesus. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. The truthfulness, okay? And if you think, oh, well, it's just a little white guy. I'm, I'm trying not to hurt their feelings. I'm thinking, I'm, you know, I don't want to hurt their feelings. It's just a little white lie. What does it hurt? You're not speaking the truth in love. All right, then commandment number 10, coveting. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his female servant, his male servant, or ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So the coveting, the coveting leads to stealing, it leads to adultery, it leads to murder, it leads to all these other sins. So have victory in commandment number 10. You might do yourself some favor on some of the other commandments that are coming along down the road. The mental attitude behind many of the above commandments is summarized here. Thus coveting serves as a fitting conclusion, even a summary of the above commandments. Jesus Christ actually summarizes the Ten Commandments when he boils them down into two. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-four through 40, he says, you shall love the Lord your God, that's the first four commandments, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, that's commandments five through ten. Right? If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then you're not going to be making an idol, serving other gods, you're not going to be profaning the Sabbath, you're not going to be violating the commandments one, two, three, and four when you love the Lord your God. And when you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not murdering him, you're not stealing from him, you're not fornicating with him, you're not taking his wife, you're not doing all those other sins against him. You can summarize the Ten Commandments with just those two. And the Apostle Paul summarized the entire law into just B above, since B inherently includes A. In other words, the only way that you can love your neighbor as yourself is if you love the Lord your God. And it's only love for God that motivates love for neighbor. So Galatians 5.14, the whole law is fulfilled in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All right, goodness, taking a lot of time in this chapter. The children of Israel were terrified at what they observed from a distance. So yeah, you think all these Ten Commandments, okay, this is great, we said we were going to do them, but now they're terrified. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You can imagine at the base of that mountain wondering what was happening to Moses up there. He even told Moses, speak to us yourself, we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. You know, they were kind of happy to have a mediator. In fact, they want to even have a larger distance between them and God. That mediator can travel further as far as they're concerned. 
Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of Him may remain with you so that you may not sin. You know, tremble, but just know that you belong to Him. The people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where where God was. The Lord repeats the prohibition against idolatry and warns Israel not to become imitators of the Canaanite worship system. And that's how the chapter concludes. Warning about those Canaanites and all the things. And even as he's warning them, they are, uh, they're going to fall into guilt quicker than anything. Got that golden calf coming up. Um, I think Thursday night? Either Thursday night or Sunday morning. It's coming up. We'll have uh, the golden calf. All right. Chapter 21. Moses receives a body of laws called the Book of the Covenant. Again, unless you side with the theological liberals and think that this was an illiterate people that didn't even learn how to read and write until they got to Babylon, uh, I mean, it's just asinine. The, the, the assumptions that they make and the stupid, but the, they're counted as geniuses among theologians to this day. It's just heartbreaking to me. But we're told in chapter 24 that uh, these things are put into writing. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. All right, There's a body of things that are in writing. And that framework begins here with the Decalogue that was put on stone, and then everything that follows the Decalogue that gets put on parchment. These are the ordinances which were to set before them. And Moses starts putting it in writing. It's written down. A copy of this is kept in the Ark of the Covenant. Moses receives a body of laws called the Book of the Covenant, which gives the basic framework for the entire body of laws. Basically what we have here from 21.1 to 24.8 gets put on a scroll for their, uh, for their learning. These are the ordinances, the mishpatim. The Hebrew mishpat speaks of a judgment or a justice or an ordinance. The ordinances are legislative standards by which the executive powers governed in judicial courts make decisions. What is the ordinance? What does it say? What does the lawgiver tell us? Here's the law. This is what needs to be executed and this is the standard for judgment in the courts. Which you are to set before them. I like that phrase. Set before them. Put it in their face. <laughs> okay? Just take this law and shove it in their face. Set it in their face. Instead of having eyes full of evil, fill their eyes with God's mishpatim, with His judgments. Previously, Moses had set the charter before them, and that's when they boasted, said, yes, we will do this. Moses will have to repeat the placing of the law before the face of each passing generation. Deuteronomy 4 and verse four, uh, 44, he's going to do it again with the next generation. He's got to lay it before them, because their parents didn't do it. <laughs> it's going to be given to them. All right, the first ordinance settles on the issue of slavery, verses 2 through 11. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years. On the seventh, he shall go out as a free man without payment. Remember, slavery was a feature of the ancient world. They themselves were slaves for 400 years in Egypt. They're going to have slaves during their time as a covenant nation in the Old Testament. And while they have these slaves, some of the slaves they end up with are going to be Hebrew slaves. They'll also have Gentile slaves, but if they do have a Hebrew slave, it was limited to those six years. They're going to go out on the, on the Sabbath year. Automatic freedom in the seventh year. All right. 
such a circumstance that come about as a result of death. There's different ways to become a slave. You can be captured in war, you can become so destitute that you have to sell yourself or your parents sell you. A lot of children got sold into slavery by the parents that couldn't raise them, that couldn't support them, that couldn't fund them. And so the, the children end up being sold into slavery. Or you had so many debts, this was the bankruptcy, this was the chapter, what, chapter 9, bankruptcy, or whatever chapter that is. All right? Included slavery and having the debts uh, dealt with by the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer that could pay the uh, pay the fees. The automatic freedom for Hebrew slaves did not apply to pagan slaves. They didn't get the get out of jail free card after seven years. The pagan slaves could serve longer. Leviticus twenty five. The Hebrew slave had an option for volitional permanent slavery. This is what happens if so. In the seventh year he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes in alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife while he's a slave, in other words, he came in as a, as a single man, but now he's married, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master, and he shall go out alone. Well, that's got to be a consideration before you get married as a slave. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost. His master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him permanently. The earring is the, 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 the signification of the lifelong permanent slave. One who should have gone out but chose to remain a lifelong permanent slave. Say, who would do that? You Believe me. This was common, okay? And um, different applications there. Female slaves were given additional protection against being misused because of their condition. There's a whole paragraph centered on the female slave. Let me get back to this volitional slave issue again. I think the the practice of this and how it was employed in the ancient world is, is interesting, uh, but it also communicates to us how we function so frequently when uh, when we sin, when we go back to the slave market of sin, what we were redeemed from. Because remember, Jesus set us free from our, our former slavery. But how often in carnality do we come along and say, oh, no, no, I don't want to be free. I like my old master. I want to serve my old master. I want to be his lifelong slave. And it's just how volitionally, and we don't lose our salvation, but we volitionally we serve our sin nature. We decide that we want to be a lifelong slave to that sin nature. It's just pathetic in, uh, in our applications. All right. Female slaves, verses 7 through 11. If a man sells his daughter as a female slave, she is not to go free as the male slaves do. You don't just you know, enjoy her for seven, six years and then kick her to the curb for year seven. It's different in the female slavery world because of the the uh, position that they're put in there. All right. If she is displeasing in the eyes of her master who designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He does not have authority to sell her to a foreign people because of his unfairness to her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. In other words, this becomes the the de facto marriage contract. This becomes the de facto 
uh, dowry and marriage agreements, all right? So we, we know about wives, we know about concubines. This is now a slavery relationship that defaults now to a concubine relationship on this basis. If he designates her for herself, for his son, if he takes to himself another woman, he may not reduce her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. You can't mistreat her. See, what happens if down the road now your changes are, are different, now you want to take another wife, and you got this one, okay? She is your wife. Cannot diminish this wife to, uh, to take another one. Some of these laws that pertain to polygamy are also kind of alien to us as we don't have polygamy practices in, uh, in our day and age. All right. Cannot reduce her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. If he will not do these things for her, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. And she does have absolute freedom at that point. She is released and um, almost like a, a widow or a divorced woman would then, uh, would then have freedom after that. All right. The remainder of the chapter is concerned with personal injuries, verses 12 through 36. And I'm going to run out of time on this, but murder is punishable by death. There are provisions that are made for a refuge for involuntary manslaughter. That's going to be key. We find out a difference between premeditated sin and just accidents that happen. Or uh, you know, it was not the intention. He, he wasn't lying in wait. It's not premeditated murder. He struck the man. Maybe they were fighting a mutual fight. And one guy got the better of the other guy, and the other guy died. That's not murder. So he can flee to the uh, city of refuge and get a fair trial before he's put to death, if he's in fact guilty of murder. Physical or verbal abuse of parents is punishable by death. Man, he who strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Capital punishment for abusing your parents. He who curses father or mother shall be surely be put to death. Not just physical abuse, verbal abuse shall be put to death. Do we understand the seriousness of a curse with the tongue that we bless, the same tongue we curse? There's uh, kidnapping punishable by death. Assault with bodily injury punishable by full payment and damages for loss. Murder and assault have particular application to slaves. Pregnant women are given protection. If you injure the baby, that's murder. Some people read this in a, in a different way to try to justify the, uh, to justify the abortion. That's not how this verse should be read. Okay? If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, in other words, man, praise God, the baby lived. Okay, whew, lucky for you, because that would have been a murder and you'd have been dead. He shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him. He's still going to face a penalty. The father of this baby is going to demand something of this man for the, the premature birth and what could have killed the kid. May demand of him, he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is further injury, then you shall appoint a penalty. So in other words, if... The baby doesn't make it. Okay? And here's the injury. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for life, hand for hand, foot for foot. Okay? So if the baby dies, it's life for life. 
burn for burn, wood for, uh, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Uh, there's a Latin phrase for this, the lex talionis. It is the, the judgment of, of the penalty in kind for the, the injury that is, that is inflicted. And you know what's interesting? This gets mocked. We have a culture today of all these enlightened, uh, you know, postmodern know-it-alls that are so holier than thou. They, they wouldn't know holiness if it slapped them upside the head. But they have this idea that eye for an eye is vulgar. Eye for an eye is primitive. Eye for an eye is, is just, um, it's unthinkable. And it's actually merciful. It is gracious. It is protective to a society, to a culture, to a population, to a people group. Because it upholds life and it upholds um, the sanctity of human life. And you'll notice, you know, injury to a slave, that slave is in the image of God. If you're knocking out a tooth or you're gouging out an eye, what are you doing abusing the image of God that way? Your slave is, is uh, not only slaves, animals, the protection of your beast. You're, you're, uh, you're, you're displeasing to the Lord in this. Okay. So uh, pregnant women were given protection. Sentencing standards are established. Crimes of negligence are also dealt with in verses 26 through 36. Then we get to chapter 22. And it continues. The first section of ordinances in chapter 22 centers on property rights. Violations of those rights due to theft or negligence. And all the ways that you can steal something. Thou shalt not steal is just two simple words, don't steal. But there's other ways to steal besides just physically taking an object from point A to point B. There's other ways you can steal. You can steal through fraud, you can steal through negligence, you can steal through borrowing and not returning. You can steal through different things. And these violations of property rights establish the principles of restitution. Killing a thief in the process of breaking and entering, not punishable by death. I've got to close with this. Um, if the thief is caught while breaking in and he struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. He was breaking in, you were defending yourself. There's no blood guilt there. But if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness. In other words, if you track him down the next day and you're just a vigilante going after the guy that stole from you the night before, that's murder. And uh, you should let the courts deal with it. Theft via animals is still theft. Arson is theft. Um, borrowed and hired property being stolen, lost, or otherwise harmed. A lot of principles here that really apply pretty well, I think, to our, our civil justice systems in America. Okay, well, that comes down to verse 15. We'll come back Tuesday night for, uh, for day 41. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged, all right? Premarital sex, Tuesday night. Stay tuned. Okay? Boy, we know how to tease people and bring them back, right? Heavenly Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the blessings we have to steady to show ourselves approved. And sometimes, Father, when we're reading the Bible, it just seems like an alien world and an alien planet. And then there's other times, Father, that we think it was just written yesterday and it applies you know, to, to where we are. All of it applies to where we are, Father, because it's God-breathed and inspired. It's alive and powerful. So, Father... Open our eyes to see the truth and for the things that seem alien to us. Uh, teach us, Father, so that we can relate, so we can understand a culture that was so long ago and yet the principles that are still with us today. 
We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.